0: Very happy to see you all tonight. Last night, you were like an impressionist painting. I did not have my glasses, so now I get to see you. And in whatever way practice clears, it also allows us to see more clearly, to, to clear our senses. And I was so happy for you thinking about you today As I think of it, one teacher said, brushing the dust of memory so that the clear mirror of your mind can be laid bare. And you may not have appreciated that the simple moments of connecting with your steps, step by step, that if you really do that, if you really put your mind in the same location as your body, your mind and body come together. It has this sense of cleaning your senses so that when you do happen to stop and notice the lizard or whatever it is that captivates your attention. It is so intimate. And just as, just even the effect of having practice today, maybe even as you sit in the room tonight and you may almost be here. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that we're almost here yet we never have left here either? We have never, not one of us has ever really left the present moment. Our life is a continual unfolding of now, yet our imagination, it's such an amazing thing. Our imagination creates this idea called future. And then we somehow incarnate in it and start dreaming. And the same with the past and if it, it, and then if the, our body tightens up it it always tightens up when we live too much in time in thoughts of time because our, our well-being is associated with what happens next and if what happens next is just a dream there's always the the uncertainty about whether it will turn out and so our body tightens and our body t- when our body tightens our thoughts start spinning more and our lives can be pervaded by what's actually not present. But yet we never leave the present. We only imagine that we, that we go here or there. This is built into our human tendency. I don't know how many of you were, have been exposed to the, the Scientific American Study where they gave 2,000 people beepers and beeped them 250,000 times. And they were were asked to describe what was in your mind at the moment that you were beeped. And it was 46.9% of the time they were daydreaming. Or no, 46.9% of the time they were present. The rest of the time they were daydreaming. And so when I say you're almost here, course you've never left here, but we've just been caught in our imagination. And when you do brush the dust of memory, you do arrive here, and you actually know you're here with what the Buddha called sampajanya, clear comprehension, maybe already you can experience or have experienced, just even in the course of the day, as difficult as the first day is. Perhaps you've experienced that the present, the actual reality, not imaginary reality, but what you're actually experiencing through your senses, that it maybe has become a little more compelling and interesting. And maybe, I don't know if this is true for you, maybe your desire to be somewhere else has diminished a little bit. This is what happened to the Buddha. This is what happens to anybody that practices long enough. Is they begin to find this amazing uh, capacity for well being. And when I think of well being, I also think of enoughness, sufficiency, where a moment that you're actually experiencing is enough. That a moment that you're actually walking is not designed to make you a better walker, it's not designed to get you someplace. But the benefit of it is evident in the actual doing of it, and in a sense, this is this um, this process of of bringing alive what's always already here is what happened to the Buddha. He didn't he didn't add a thing to his nature. Even though we do a lot of cultivation, it's all in the service of being able to see with clear perception what's always already here. And what he discovered was this, as it's described in the Tibetan tradition, this natural great peace and ease. That is our natural state. Easy to miss. Notice what happens now after your last memory has passed and before the next one comes, and you're just here, not looking ahead, not looking back, the dust has cleared for a moment, what's the state of mind that is present without creating anything? I don't know if you've heard this part of the Buddha's path of well-being and happiness but it's it's also said that the high, he said the highest happiness is peace how far do we have to travel to find that where do you have to go of course nowhere and like i said ultimately we've never gone anywhere We've just missed what's always already here. And even people, devas, all kinds of beings came to the Buddha and says, well, can you get to the end of the, the cycle of suffering, the cycle of, can you get to the end of the world by going? And the Buddha said, no, you can't get to the end of the, the cycles of, of uh, suffering, the end of the world, the end of the cosmos by going. He says, only those who get to the end of the cosmos or the end of the world or the end of the cycles of suffering become liberated, become free. But then he didn't didn't stop there. He said, within this fathom long body lies the world. The world of, of the cycles of existence, greed, hatred, ignorance, everything that we go through. Within this fathom-long body with its senses and its perception lies the cause of the world, what keeps us spinning this world out in our minds, in our imaginations, keeps us going. But then he said, and we've been referring to this in the little teachings on the Four Noble Truths, he says, within this fathom-long body with its senses and perceptions lies the end of the world the end of the cycle of, ex- of being born again and again into this imaginary world of going. And he said, within this fathom-long body, with its senses and perceptions, lies the path leading to the end of the world. So there is a path, and it goes nowhere. As the famous Japanese Monk, poet, Ryokan says, Buddha, awake. Buddha is your own mind. Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? So what, do, what does one discover when we stop going out, when we stop going, when we settle back in the moment? I suggested perhaps that what you discover is the present reality, real time, simple time, which is really made up of only six experiences, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching or feeling things through the body thinking that's really all but that those senses when we're when we experience them very directly they they um, they're not as fraught with the the mental suffering that often is uh, plaguing our plaguing our mind and suffering eases when in fact it It's very hard to suffer and and notice that you're hearing in the same moment. It's hard to suffer and notice that you're sensing something in the body. It's hard to suffer noticing when you're tasting. So the the organizing, the, the gathering our attention to the simple reality of the present moment is a is a very uh, testable, very reliable uh, means of of easing our distress. Maybe at a little taste. Maybe I, I'm jumping the gun because the first day is often a hell realm. It's really hard, and I wanted—I I almost wanted to thank you so much for your practice today because. In this, in this mad world that gets created by our minds that does seem to get, be so disembodied, so disconnected, so, so much lacking of heartfulness in many cases that our, our nervous systems go into overload and our world so desperately needs people who have regulated nervous systems examples of peace and hopefully when as you embrace the the and feel the benefits of the life of the present moment and if you stay here long enough your body and mind will calm and then you just by your very presence you will be throwing a lifeline to every every other person who's mentally ill in this world and i use that word very loosely because we're all mentally ill in fact one of our means of ending our mental, our own version of mental illness is just stopping. Because once you stop, of course, and maybe you saw this today, I always think of the words of Bhante Gunaratne, where he says, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come to the realization that you're completely crazy. <laughs> Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down a hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. says, no problem. You're no worse than you were yesterday. It's always been this way. You just didn't notice. But we're dramatically changing our relationship to this crazy mind. Instead of acting from the craziness in our mind, we're slowing down, waking up to it, relating to it. And relating to our crazy mind creates a space of, of freedom, a, a, a space of choice, a, a space of, of, um, of compassion to see how unbidden, unbidden the flywheel of thoughts and feelings and how relentless the experience of, of all of our senses is. All of our senses are. I was thinking today. James gave that beautiful instruction that that I also feel very passionate about. That, that moment that you wake up to where you are. When your mind has been absorbed in in thoughts, you know, the, it happens. Of course, thoughts arise, and when mindfulness rises up to notice the thinking mind, it's no problem. A thought's just another sense experience to be noticed. But when that thought goes unnoticed, it starts spreading out into into ordinary thinking and we fall into what, what some call the chain of delusion. We get lost in thought. And then we wake up and we notice, oh, no longer thinking. And then he said the tendency is to judge that. And of course any judgment creates tension and tension tends to generate more thinking and pretty soon our body is more tense and once our body is more tense it's like a tube of toothpaste, out comes more thinking and it it just happens, it's a cycle. But we judge that process because we don't understand it. We don't actually relate to it with uh, it, with an intuitive awareness, with with clarity. And so much of our suffering in our mind, much of our even our self-judgment comes from the view that there is a little agent in there that's making those thoughts happen. It's that tendency to personalize those thoughts. But once we're relating to the thinking mind, we see I'm sitting here. I have a little more Awareness and without any prompting, completely unbidden, that flywheel of thinking just happens. If we see that with a little more clarity, we see that that, those thoughts are their own thinkers. There's no one to blame for the thinking mind thinking. And the more you just see how the thoughts think themselves, how they just pop up and fade away. Sometimes mindfulness rises up to notice them. Sometimes it, it doesn't. And when it doesn't, wander a long time in an imaginary world. But the more you see that the thoughts think themselves, it becomes absurd to judge them. And then the natural response to the effect that so many thoughts have on our consciousness because they're so conditioned, is to say, wow, that's hard. And I and they they come with a strong feeling connected to them. There's so much that that's that I, I wish I could, I wish it could stop, but it, it's just coming. So rather than judgment, it becomes a cause of, of self-compassion. But all this comes from stopping, and the wisdom comes from stopping and seeing clearly. So I want to talk about the wisdom part of practice tonight. Of course, the wi- whoops, oh, that was good. The wisdom part is, is completely interwoven. Don't tell me you have towels here. The wisdom part is very interwoven with, the, with love, they're, they're inseparable, but I'd like to highlight a little bit the wisdom part. So as James mentioned last night, thank you so much, the Buddha was called Sukhya or the happy one. And he also described today that the happiness is not necessarily the happiness of a good mood. Although good moods are wonderful, and whatever brings gladness to our hearts is a is a um, is is onward leading, is helpful in our life. But the Buddha was very specific and very clear about what he meant by happiness. And of course, what his description of happiness was was born of his own direct experience. It wasn't a, a theory he adopted. It wasn't just a, a point of view. It wasn't a religion. It was something that was born of a direct experience. The wisdom that, that flowed through his consciousness, the intuitive understanding came from uh, a face-to-face, a direct encounter with how life is. And the most obvious, you could say, start to his journey of happiness and journey of wisdom was his confrontation with, or his meeting with what have been described as the three heavenly messengers. He saw the reality, the first heavenly messenger was uh, someone near in his age who was quite ill. So he saw the reality of sickness, and it said at that moment his enchantment with youth, or his pride in youth—the thinking that you know I can be young forever—it just kind of evaporated. Thanks, Ramona. And then he saw someone who was extremely old, and it said at that moment his enchantment or pride in um, in well, actually, he saw somebody r- extremely ill and his pride in health melted away. He saw someone extremely old and his pride in youth melted away. Then he saw a corpse. And he, his pride in life melted away, his enchantment with life. And I, I think it, we have to shout it from the hilltops because our capacity for self-deception is so strong that we do not want to acknowledge the reality of sickness, aging, and dying. But it is everything when it comes to awakening to the highest happiness, the greatest happiness that is possible for us. When this happened to the Buddha, and hopefully I'll elaborate a little bit as I go along, when he saw the reality of sickness, old age, and death, and this is really what became the cause and condition for his strong intention. And I know James did a, a piece about intention this afternoon. It became clear to him that he could not rely on youth, he could not rely on health, could not rely on, hap- on, on life for, for happiness, for true happiness, because they, are, they may give you... Lots and lots of pleasure, but that pleasure is, has a certain shelf life. And then he noticed that most of what he had engaged in in his life, the pleasures of the senses, which we, we all need the, the gladness that comes from having our senses open and freshened and sight, sound, smells, and tastes. But what he also saw that what he engaged, what he, um, what he used to define his happiness, to make him happy, were also experiences that had a very short span of pleasure, and then followed in their what followed in their wake was a feeling of whatever that experience passing, a feeling of loss, a little momentary sense of something fading away. And then what would quickly follow was the desire for more. And so he saw that if if my mind, if if my body is subject to sickness, old age, and dying, and everything I seem to use to find relief in my life is also subject to change and is unreliable as a source of ultimate happiness, where can I actually find True happiness. And it's at that moment that he saw that, that yes, there is in this world what he called Lokiyasukha. There is worldly happiness and so many kinds of worldly happiness. Worldly happiness is the pleasure that we experience with, I'm experiencing Lokiyasukha tonight, just being with you. This is the a pleasure of being together, of sharing the Dharma, being in this beautiful place. It's called Lokiya Sukha, worldly happiness, or otherwise known as conventional happiness. Conventional happiness includes the happiness of, um, of whatever you experience through your senses. That's one kind of happiness. There's also the happiness that we described in, when we described the training guidelines or the precepts. The happiness of non-harming. The joy, the bliss of blamelessness. A certain delight that comes when our mind is free of, of the effects of, of having said something or done something that we regret or that we ruminate about. To live a, a life of, of blamelessness makes you really happy. And not only that, but you get the feedback from others of happiness because other people feel safer around you. They, it's described that, that that happiness of non-harming uh, offers what's called the, the, um, the gift of fearlessness. Nobody has to be afraid of you. And that brings pleasure. It's a kind of worldly pleasure. In fact, the, the Buddha said that, that uh, acting... Kindly, non-harmingly, was, is actually uh, 16 times more valuable than, uh, than having resources, sharing them, and being debt-free. Those are the main kinds of worldly happiness. But having, practicing non-harming is, is 16 times more valuable according to the teachings. How he came up with 16, we'll never know. Having the the joy, the happiness of non-harming is what the Buddha described as what makes it possible to to be available to all the variety of sense experiences that we have, to have our senses clear enough to to enjoy sights and sounds and smells and tastes. But he, he also discovered that Worldly happiness, conventional happiness, lokiya sukha, was um, was not so reliable. In fact, he also described it as the happiness of dependency, or the happiness of bondage, and he 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 described it as being subsumed by the the uh, the teaching on what's called dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, that the pleasures of the senses, because they are fleeting, even all the beautiful, wholesome qualities that we can experience in our life, we're happy when they are present and we're unhappy when they're not. And so ultimately, that is, it's not a reliable place uh, to, um, it's not a reliable refuge. So remember, we, we go to the Buddha for refuge, go to the Dharma for refuge. We're always looking for a refuge. Fortunately, in the course of his practice, and I alluded to this at the beginning of the talk, he discovered a happiness and a well-being that didn't depend so much on circumstances or conditions. A happiness that, was, that could pervade times when you're when you're having a lot of pleasure and times when you're not. He called it Lokutra Sukha. Lokutra means, uh, Sukha is the word for happiness, comfort, well-being. Lokutra means unstuck from the world. A happiness, a pleasure that is, that, is, um, that is beyond the power and influence of whatever's happening in your mind or your body or in your life. a uh, kind of a happiness of freedom. So how did he discover that? And what did he do when he realized that, the, that everything he had um, used as a means of finding happiness in terms of dependency on the sense experience, dependency on youth, dependency on health, dependency on life, when he saw that those things were not Reliable. It's then that he started to practice. And he developed in his practice quite quickly because he had such a strong intention to find a well-being and a happiness that didn't depend so much on on circumstances as it wasn't really freedom. But he started to practice and he quite quickly, because of his determination, he touched into... Uh, many of the qualities that we are cultivating in the retreat. You now, it's interesting when I, I talk about the, the c- unconditional happiness, but it seems there's a paradox involved there, this unconditional well being. The paradox is that only those who condition their minds to be present tend to realize it. And so he trained his attention using very similar elements of what we did today. We put our attention in the same location as our body. We kept collecting it and sustaining it. And when you, col- when you connect with the felt sense of the present moment and you sustain it, these are called, the, this capacity that we have to gather our attention and sustain our attention, called concentration factors. And along with them comes this feeling of comfort as our mind and body come into harmony. And with that feeling of comfort over time, again, a lot of what we deal with the first day is is restlessness and dullness. It's not your fault. It's just conditions. Just like the thinking mind is not your fault, as my friend Wes Nisker says, you're not your fault. But when these, when One uses one's attention to gather and sustain, there is a comfort that comes. And with that comfort also comes a sense of more continuity of aware presence. And with the continuity of aware presence, there is a feeling of having much more rapt attention. And with that sometimes comes a feeling, a physical feeling of being enlivened. Sometimes that enlivened feeling is really intense and not so pleasant, but nevertheless, there is this increasing sense of being wrapped, being comfortable, and settling in moments into a feeling of what's sometimes it's called one-pointedness, uh, called ekagata. And often when we touch into that one-pointedness, when things come together, just even for a few moments, there's often a, a feeling of connection, not just with ourselves in the present moment, but a feeling of uh, the sense of what's inside and outside kind of melt away a little bit. We just don't feel like we have as, much, as many boundaries. So there's often a feeling initially, based on our ordinary consciousness, there's a feeling of being altered. But it's actually just an expanded experience of ourselves. This happened for the Buddha very quickly. And he experienced the effects of this kind of connectedness, this collectedness to such an extent that he, his mind didn't want to be anywhere else for a little while. And what was even more amazing is that uh, he wasn't reacting to anything, wasn't wanting anything, he wasn't restless, he wasn't dull, and his usual and his doubts about life just kind of kind of melted away. He, he experienced a happiness that was beyond the usual fleeting happiness that we usually depend on. He called it unmixed happiness, supramundane happiness, beyond the mundane. And he was. And it could be sustained for much longer than the usual, the usual sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And there was such joy. It's sometimes described as the joy of concentration. And he then noticed something. That, that he noticed that it was really inspiring to touch into that sense of unification of the mind and body. Really inspiring. But then he noticed something that's really key to our uh, discovery of true happiness. He noticed that that experience that he was having still depended on conditions being a certain way. And when those conditions change, get a little tired, get a little hungry, get whatever, at some point those conditions would change. So he saw that even the most rarefied state of mind, such a beautiful, happy state, although it was so gladdening, so inspiring, he called it a springboard to nirvana. He saw eventually it was still subsumed by the same unreliability, marked by dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. And if what he then described in his teachings, if you if you really pursue that as your, if you make yourself just, if you devote yourself to that for your happiness, uh, you'll be unhappy. Of course you'll be happy when your mind is collected, and you'll be unhappy when it's not. And that's not true happiness. And that was the extent of what what crossed his path in his life up to this point is the what was being taught was this the happiness of a well-concentrated mind. But he knew that wasn't real, that wasn't the, the highest happiness. Really helpful, really gladdening, really soothing, quieting, calming, but not a place to stop. And when he saw that that was unreliable, he, he said, this, is, uh, this isn't the real deal. So then he tried to do ascetic practices as you probably, most of you have probably heard the story, he tried to do ascetic practices, try to transcend his body by not eating. And it said that he got so skinny that he could touch his spine. You know, he could push on his belly button and touch his spine. He got so skinny and he turned green or something from eating nettles. And, and it just made him sick, tired and cranky and uh, not free. But then he remembered a, a time when he was, he was a, a young boy and he was well-fed, enjoying the senses, uh, but comfortable. And he saw that to actually awaken, one has to have some measure of comfort. So we have to have our hearts gladdened. We have to have our senses satisfied. It's, you cannot deny the pleasures of this world but we have to bring wisdom to the pleasures of this world. As Suzuki Roshi said, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in understanding that they go away, that they fade away, that they're not reliable. But he remembered that time when he was comfortable and he said, You got to be comfortable. And it's at that moment that he realized what's described as the middle way. If you go to the extreme of asceticism or self-denial, it makes you tight. Go to the extreme of sensual indulgence, you can't find uh, relief that way either. You just keep spinning on that endless uh, wheel of going, of going, 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 obsessed by what's next. There's no rest. So at this point, there was no one to help him and he sat down and did what we're doing here. Again, he, he collected himself. He used a lot of the qualities that he developed as he was training his attention. And he, he then sted, he steadied everything again and felt that aliveness, but he didn't let the pleasure of it seduce him anymore. He didn't, he didn't really get too caught up in the pleasure of concentration. Instead, he just used his attention mixed it with attention, the strength and power of mind and the intention to find a reliable refuge. And he started to pay attention, moment by moment, moving through the same foundations of mindfulness that we will move through on this retreat. Today it was primarily mindfulness of the body, through the experience, the body's experience of its own breath, putting the attention in that same location. But then he studied the, the states of the heart and mind, moods, emotions. He studied thoughts and images, studied the different, different uh, qualities of mind, which qualities of mind seem to be enlivening and enhancing and which qualities tend to just make us really uncomfortable and miserable. And wisdom started to grow. But more importantly, the more he paid attention to the flow of his experience, not going anywhere. The brighter and the brighter his mind became until it was as though his mind, his own mind, his attention was shining in its clarity. And there began began a feeling of note of, there was a recognition that things were coming and going, like I was describing the thoughts before. And you saw this for yourself today, how the thoughts just come and they go. And the sensations come and go. The pain comes and the pain fades. And the more he saw that everything was marked by coming and going. Everything was dying from the moment it was born. His mind just stopped grabbing so much. Stopped pulling for more. Stopped pushing things away and started to enjoy a well-being and happiness that didn't seem to be dependent on what came into his mind. And he fell into this, what's described as the joy of equanimity. And he experienced a taste of that um, locutra sukha, that unconditional happiness that doesn't seem to be, that seemed to be unaffected by all of the experiences that visited. Later on in his teaching, he kind of let out some Utterances as we said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And it is colored by all the, the defilements that visit all the tendencies of mind. And this, the, the ordinary person doesn't understand, so there's no cultivation of their mind. They just get carried away in it. But then he said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And it is untouched by these defilements these states of mind that visit this the yogi understands and so there's cultivation of the mind and as he as he settled into this most natural experience of noticing the arising and fading of experiences experiencing that joy of equanimity in a flash of insight he realized that the reliable refuge that he had so long searched for was none other than the natural state of his own mind and he had a a kind of awakening that it, The nature of his own mind was uh, unconditional, unconditioned, deathless. And when he experienced that, and he felt the complete cessation of falling away of this tendency to go in search. Of happiness. And he dwelled in this sense of just natural wakefulness, you could say. He thought, this is so subtle. This is so close. I'm not sure anybody will get this. And it's, I've always enjoyed this. Tibetan teaching called the four faults. They say why why we my most of us don't recognize that uh, the natural freedom that is available to us. He says because it's one, it's too close; two, it's too vast. Kind of can't put it in our conceptual framework. It's too wondrous, and it's too easy. <laughs> that all that one has to do, in a way, is. Turn toward what's always already here. Be be as you are and don't stray away from yourself so much. But even though he didn't think he was very dubious about uh, whether anybody would understand, he saw that there were, as the story goes, he saw that there were those who had just a little dust on their eyes and if, um, if pointed back to themselves, could realize the same sense of freedom that he did. And so then, he, of course, he spent the next 40 years um, encouraging people. It was like that, that lifeline, like you are going to provide to the world, the lifeline of somebody who who knows that even in the midst, I'll use the Albert Camus quote, even in the midst of winter, you, maybe you've discovered that there's an invincible summer. And in the case of the first day, it's just, oh, even though the world is crazy, there's moments that I'm not crazy. Life can be really beautiful and simple. So easily missed. And if you... If you really get used to that, stabilize that, then you, in your own way, with your own life, you create the same lifeline for that he did, pointing people, not to the shopping mall, but back to the nature of your own heart. So all the cultivation that we will be doing, and the 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 enhancement of the gladness that we feel when we experience a wholesome state of mind or a, a wholesome act of body, speech, and mind, all of it is in service of this uh, of the uh, realizing the potential of the of this highest happiness and. It's understood in the teachings that if one, if you aim, if your intention is for this, this happiness of freedom, this happiness, this unconditional happiness, that if you really make that your devotion, that all the other kinds of pleasures in the world, all the other kinds of happiness are enhanced and actually come in the wake of that of that, um, that one desire that no other desire can actually fulfill the desire for freedom. So the encouragement of course is to aim for the highest happiness. May we all realize the highest happiness. May we all um, know it and never be separated from it. So, hopefully you have a little more sense of the the Buddha's path of well-being and happiness. Of course, it's got 45 years of of different uh, nuances and subtleties. Um, But the heart of it is realizing the unconditional well being and happiness that is your natural state. So let's just sit for a moment. And I will end with a passage from a Tibetan teacher named Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower. but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in your body and mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. So why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply allow the entire game to happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace And happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. Nothing to do or to undo. Nothing to force. Nothing to want. And nothing missing. Marvelous. Everything unfolds by itself. Let go, let go, let go. Thank you so much for your kind attention. I know how difficult it is on the first night to listen through a Dharma talk, but you hung in there and much appreciation. We do now have about 28 minutes or so for, for walking practice and then one last sitting before the end of the evening, remember? Not going anywhere, even when you're moving. Be present, thank you.